last week. It strikes me as we sing about hallelujah for the cross, about what the cross actually is. It's a bloody instrument of torture. And yet today, it is our hope. Today is what we can sing about. Today is what we can rejoice in, the fact that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and our hope is that the tomb is empty. Grace Chapel, I hope that is your joy this morning. The passage this morning is Psalm 34. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. It should be on page 463 in the Pew Bible, so please turn there with me this morning. Be reading it momentarily. For those of you who have met my wife, Sarah, she is all about free samples. You know, the free samples where you go to the little tables when you walk in the store and they're all laid out there. She will stop every single time to get them. And we know they exist to entice us into buying something. How many free sample lovers do we have here? (laughs) See, when we were in seminary, the cupboards were always bare. Those were some very lean times, but God always provided. Here's one time how God provided in our seminary. We got a free month's offer for Sam's Club. So you know what my wife did? She took our four young children to Sam's Club and gave them lunch on the free samples. (laughs) The Lord provides. This morning, what I want to talk about is, is how we as a people of God, how people in general, but we as the church of God, tend to treat Jesus like one of those free samples. Oh, look, a free sample. Then we run over to the table, we grab it, and then we move on. See, free samples are meant to be something we take in passing. They are not meant to satisfy. So many people, even seasoned Christians, even myself, we tend to treat Jesus like he's a free sample. We try him out for a little bit. We see how he tastes. And then we move on to something else or someone else. We don't even realize we do it. We don't even realize that we often, so very often, settle for less. Church, God lays out a feast before us. And here we are content for the table scraps. Our problem, because of this, is that we like a convenient Jesus. We like a Jesus who we can grab a quick bite to eat, and then we don't like a Jesus that actually requires us to slow down to sit with him at the table and feast. We like a Jesus we can come to and cast our cares upon when we need help, but we don't like the Jesus that calls us to daily take up our cross to follow him and to die. We don't like that Jesus. See, we have a Jesus who offers himself as a living feast. And here we are remaining content for the free samples. Let me be clear. Jesus cannot be a free sample. Jesus 
is a feast. Jesus isn't someone you just try out, someone you take in passing. He isn't someone you get a little something of and then move on. We must approach Jesus and His Word like the feast that it is. Because Jesus alone will satisfy. He will fill the longing of our hearts. We are created to be satisfied in Him alone. So church, this morning, I want to encourage all of us to slow down and come to the feast. David in Psalm 34 calls God's people to taste and see the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 1-10, we're going to see three things in there. How do we taste and see that the Lord is good? I believe David points out three ways. The first way is we taste and see that the Lord is good by praising Him. We must praise and glorify the Lord together. Secondly, we taste and see that the Lord is good by seeking Him. We must look to the Lord and call upon His great name. Third thing, we taste and see that the Lord is good by fearing Him. Those who fear the Lord are promised to lack nothing. So brothers and sisters, let's slow down this morning. Let's slow our hearts, let's slow our minds down and come to the feast. Let us taste and see that the Lord, our great God, is good. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1, going down to verse 10, follow along as we feast on God's Word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Grace Chapel, this is the feast we have this morning. Our Father, help us to know, to grasp, to understand the weight and the glory and the beauty of the feast that you have laid out for us. God, Father, Son, Spirit, you are our feast. Your word is our feast. Help us to taste and see that you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing, how do we taste and see that the Lord is good? We must praise Him continually. Look at verses 1 to 3. I, David says, will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. 
Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Our praise, church, must be everlasting to everlasting. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in our mouths. What David is very simply telling us is that there is no such thing as a Sunday Christian. There is no such thing as someone who comes on Sunday, worships for an hour and a half or two hours, and then walks away. That's an anomaly. Every follower of Christ is a one who is to praise, to continually have the works and the glory of God on his lips 24-7, 365. That means Monday. And we all know how rough Monday can be. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Your praise doesn't start on Sunday and doesn't end after the worship service. Your praise never starts and never ends. It should always be happening. There is no end to it. But where, how does praise flow out of our hearts? How does praise flow out from within us? Where does it come from? Praise comes from humble hearts. Praise flows outwardly. If our hearts and minds are enthralled with the love of God, then our lips will echo forth that love. Humble hearts hear and are glad. We speak of Him continually because we are thinking about Him continually. So what's the opposite of that? If we're not thinking about God, what are we not going to be doing? Praising God. If His wonder is in our minds, then His praises will be on our lips. Glad and humble hearts give praise and glory to God. This is our chief end. This is why we have been created to worship. But as we know, as Jesus Himself says, both praise and cursing flow from our hearts. In Luke 6, Jesus says, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of redeemed hearts, there is praise. See, praise is the fruit of our redemption. If you have been redeemed by Christ, you will cry out, Hallelujah for the cross. Our souls being satisfied in God boast in the Lord. Our hearts are humbled and we're glad and we magnify the Lord together. The idea of magnifying is to put the Lord in the spotlight to bring attention to His glory, His majesty, His beauty, His might, His strength, His love, and His holiness. We exalt Him. We lift Him up. We must make much of God. And do you know what that means, church? We need to start making little of ourselves. You can't make much of yourself and much of God. We don't make God great. He already is. But when we give Him our praise, our worship, our blessing, when we exalt and magnify Him, we declare His greatness, His glory, His beauty, and His wonder to ourselves. We're preaching to ourselves. We're singing to ourselves. And we're also doing that to others. You realize, church, when you sing God's praises, you are praising Him. 
but you're also encouraging the person next to you in the pew, as long as you have a good voice. I'm kidding. I, don't, I can't sing to save my life, so I usually sing quietly. But we lift up our praise to God, but we're also encouraging one another. If you turn back one psalm, you see Psalm, 7, psalm 33 begins with this. Shout for joy in the Lord. When's the last time you shouted for joy in the Lord? I'm not going to ask you to do that. Not yet, at least. O oh, you righteous, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. In other words, what David is saying in Psalm 33 is that praise is our job description. As followers of Christ, as worshipers of God, that is what we are called to do, to give praise. And it's praise continually on our lips. The reality is we tend to view praise rather narrowly, don't we? When do we praise? We praise when we're singing, and then the preacher stands up to preach, and then the praise is stopped, right? No. You are praising God by listening to a sermon. We praise God together by praying together. We praise God when you're driving on the way home. Praise should always be on our lips. Paul in Romans 12 says that our spiritual act of worship is to live, to offer our bodies, to offer our entire being to praise and worship of God. Blessing, praise, boasting in the Lord, magnifying, exaltation. These must be continual marks of our life. We identify ourselves as I am so-and-so and I do this job. As far as of Christ, we say, I am so-and-so, and I worship the King. Praise is always on our lips. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a way of living before the face of God. It's waking up and realizing that God is there, and you are standing before His face when you come to Him. And He's holy and righteous, but good and loving. It's a constant awareness that God is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. It's living life that is molded and shaped by our redemption in Christ. See, when we praise the Lord, when we praise Him continually, we are partaking in a feast. Our prayer should always be, God, our Father, help us to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. Help us to find our satisfaction in Christ. Our bread is Christ. Our manna is Christ. He alone satisfies the hunger of our souls, the thirst of our souls. Brothers and sisters, give praise to God. Taste and see that He is good. Secondly, we taste and see of the Lord's goodness when we seek Him. Look with me at verses 4 to 6. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. If we're honest, church, most of our lives are spent not seeking the Lord. 
We go throughout the week. We do very little seeking. We tend to live our lives without God. We confess him on Sunday. We maybe even give praise for a little bit after, but even I tend to forget my own sermons on the next day. And I know you all will. Because we are not seeking the Lord regularly. His word, his thoughts, they don't form a regular part of our lives. We are moved by the songs we sing. We are encouraged by the word we hear. But the eagles are on at one o'clock. We may even come Sunday with joyful and hopeful hearts to the Lord. But Monday comes. And Monday, there's such a disconnect between Monday and Sunday. But what David is saying is there is no barrier. There is no wall. Let's break it down. Seek the Lord continually and taste and see that he is good. See, there's something wrong with the way we live. We don't live life before the face of God. We don't regularly and continually feast on Him. Now don't get me wrong, if the Eagles are on playing, I usually have the TV on. There's nothing wrong with enjoying sports. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's good gifts. The danger lies when we take those gifts and fail to thank the giver of those gifts. The problem is we don't see our lives as worship 24-7, 365. Do you realize that you can glorify God and watch the eagles? Now, I'm not just saying that because I like the eagles. I'm saying that because Paul says whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, what, church? For the glory of God. We are to seek the Lord every moment of the day, every moment of the week, every moment of the year. Now, this seems like quite the tall order, right? We all have all read those commands in Scripture that just seem impossible to keep. How are we to praise the Lord continually? How are we to seek the Lord always? It's about our perspective and our motivation. What is your motivation when you go to work on Monday? Is it to honor your Savior, your savior or just to get the paycheck? What is your perspective come Sunday afternoon? Is it to watch the eagles or to enjoy the rest that God has given you in Christ? How do we seek the Lord for help in the drudgery of the ordinary of every day? Those are the questions we need to be thinking about as we seek the Lord at all times. Even asking God, help us. Help me find rest and enjoyment in you as I play with my children. Help me find rest and enjoyment with you as I go vacation this summer. Help me find rest and enjoyment in you as I go to a job I hate. Those motivational questions are the ones that help form in us that all we do is for the glory of God. Our, the idea here is that our daily habits must be formed to seek the Lord. We glorify God in everything we do, from brushing our teeth to sleeping at night. We glorify God in our rest because rest says, God, I trust you as I lay my head down on the pillow and fall to sleep. I trust that you are still working, still watching after me. See, the thing with seeking the Lord and praising Him is that we need to develop 
Lord seeking him into the very fabric of our lives. See, we, we live lives that are disconnected from what we do on Sunday. We need to bring Sunday into the rest of the week, and we need to bring the rest of the week back into Sunday. We need to realize that all of life is an act of worship because we live all of life before the face of God. So when you wake up Monday morning, you should be realizing that God is there. And you need to hear from him in his word and go to him in prayer to live your life seeking him. And that doesn't mean a, a 35 minute long prayer. That could mean, God, I really don't like Mondays. Help me, please, to live before your face today. Like David, we are poor men and women who must cry out to the Lord, but Scripture promises us that those who cry out to the Lord, that the Lord will rescue and save us, and that those who look to the Lord will be radiant. See, I don't know if you realize this or not, but your radiance, your joy, is directly tied to your Christian witness. If you are radiant because you are seeking the Lord, people will take notice when you walk out Monday morning and you see your neighbor, what are they thinking when they see your face? That he went to Sunday morning worship and we see the joy of Christ on him. Why does he have such joy? Or are they thinking, yep, he's just another miserable person stuck going to a job he doesn't like? Our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers will notice our expression, will notice our radiance. And those, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, as you are suffering, and who here has not suffered? Everyone has suffered. As you are suffering, live in such a way that people see the hope within you. And they say, why do you hope? What is the basis? What is the foundation of your hope? And you can say, it is Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. All to Him I owe. He is my hope. He is my Savior. My life is falling apart, but my Christ is my foundation. My hope is found on Him and nothing else. His wretched death that is the cross, the bloody, cruel Roman cross that we celebrate, we glory in. His death, burial, and resurrect, resurrection, which is our hope and our glory, that is what we hope in. That is what Peter says should be the expression of our hope to our friends and neighbors. So let me ask you this. For those who say that they seek the Lord, do you have that radiance about you? Have you sought the Lord? Have you found Him as your great Savior? Do people, do your friends, your family, your neighbors, especially unbelievers, do they see your joy? Do they see that you are one who seeks the Lord? There's a remarkable story in Acts 4 about Peter and John. They are brought before the religious leaders and interrogated. Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us this, that Peter was filled by the Spirit and proclaimed Christ. He said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then Luke continues, when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John, and realizing that they were unschooled, 
ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, church, we're all ordinary men and women. We are no different from Peter and John. But do your friends and neighbors know that you have been with Jesus? Do they know that you seek Him continually? Do they see the radiance in your face? Because Scripture tells us, promises us, that if we seek the Lord, we will be radiant. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek the Lord. Look to Him. Feast on Him. And live your lives in such a way that the radiance of Christ is evident in all you say and do. Taste and see that the Lord our God is good. And allow His radiance to shine through you before the world. Lastly, how do we taste and see that the Lord is good. We fear Him. Look at verses 7-10. through 10. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I love the story in Mark 4. Jesus is fast asleep in a boat. His disciples are wide awake. They're charting a course across the sea. All of a sudden, Mark tells us a windstorm, a powerful windstorm came, and the waves are beating against the boat, and the boat is filling with water, and the disciples are terrified. And where's Jesus? Sound asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him in panic. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus wakes up and he just says this, Peace, be still. The wind ceased. The waves calmed. The storm was gone. But something in that moment remarkable happens. Mark tells us that the disciples were struck with fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Church, that is the fear we need to have of our Lord and Savior as His followers. Who is this wonderful, powerful, mighty Savior? Who is this one who commands the winds and the sea and who at His peace be still commands and it stops? That is the God we worship. R.C. Sproul in his classic book called The Holiness of God talks about the trauma of holiness. 
He says that God is so holy, so righteous, that even his love creates in us trauma. There's a deep traumatic fear of the Lord. What it means is it shakes us up. It moves us to the core. It freezes us in place. Our hearts race. Our palms sweat. We stand with Isaiah as he witnesses the Lord seated on the throne. The seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we with Isaiah cry out, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Grace Chapel, the Lord is holy and righteous. He is an all-consuming fire. He is to be feared with the holy reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is this. It's a comfort to those who believe, but a terror to those who reject Him. The fear of the Lord is comfort because the Lord surrounds those who fear Him. The angel of the Lord encamps around all who fear Him. Throughout Scripture, Jesus is the angel of the Lord who fights to protect His people. Throughout the Old Testament, He fights to protect. In His incarnation, He fights to protect. In His death, which seems like He lost the battle, He rises victorious and continues to fight for His people. Hebrews tells us that right now, the very Son of God who bled and died for you is interceding before the Father on your behalf. Jesus fights for you. He surrounds and protects those who fear Him. And church, this is our comfort because God will always answer the prayers of His Son. But the holiness of the Lord should strike terror and fear into the hearts and minds of those who reject him or remain indifferent. Back in Psalm 33 and verse 8, David calls upon, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. David calls all the earth to fear the Lord. All the earth to believe in. Here's the thing. In short, there are only two types of people. There are those who fear the Lord and those whom the Lord will make fear Him. There are only those who are in Christ or not in Christ. You either believe and trust in Him or you have rejected Him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. You can't remain indifferent about Jesus. There's no, eh, Jesus is just okay. You cannot be confronted with the Son of the Man and sit there and just shrug your shoulders. See, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one which John describes as riding on a white horse with a flaming sword jutting from his mouth. He is riding to war. He is coming to judge and lay waste to all his enemies. This is Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus this morning, let revelation, God's holy word, strike holy fear in your hearts. John describes Jesus this way in Revelation 19. Then I saw in heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, Jesus is our loving Savior. But he is also a warrior king. He has died for us and he has risen to fight for us. But those who remain indifferent to Christ or reject him, he mounts his white horse for you and he is riding out into battle. He will strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. But there is hope for those who have not yet believed in Christ. Because David calls you also to taste and see that the Lord is good. To allow his death, his resurrection to not be a terror anymore to you, but a comfort. So I encourage you to come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear him with holiness and reverence and all, and you will lack nothing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is a feast. Jesus, by his shed blood, purchased us for us an entrance into that feast. And the Holy Spirit calls everyone here to come to the feast. Let me end by offering just a word of application by asking this, these questions. How do you approach a feast? How do you come to a feast? If God is a feast, how do we come to him? There's a restaurant in Philly, and I think it's international. It's called Fogo de Chao. It's a Brazilian steakhouse. I've never been, but my uncle, every time I see him, tells me about it. You pay, I think you pay a flat $50 fee, and you have unlimited steak, unlimited chicken, lamb, pork, seafood, you name it. They have more steaks than I even realized existed. Top sirloin, beef tenderloin, ribeye, bottom sirloin, beef ribs, and bacon-wrapped steak. <laughs> bacon-wrapped steak. All right. A little distracted by the bacon. <laughs> but back to my point, you don't walk into Fogo de Chao or any place like that and within 15 minutes inhale your lunch. You plan. You don't eat that day. You don't eat that week because you want to get your $50 worth. You walk in and you got a plan mapped out. I'm having this then. In an hour, I'll have another. In an hour, I, I don't know if they have a time limit. No? Salad bar. See, the salad bar is a trick. Don't do the salad bar. That's a trick. Never eat salad when you have a feast before you. But here's the point. For this to happen, to enter into a feast, what must we do but slow down. We must slow down. If God is a feast, we must slow down.
And I think slowing down is what's often lacking in our relationship with God today. We don't slow down. We're too busy. God is offering us a feast. He offers us himself. But we don't slow down to enjoy him. We're too busy for God. Our culture tells us that to be successful and productive, we must be doing. We must be busy. We must stay busy. Do, do, do. We play the game chasing after the ever-elusive American dream, never reaching it, but always striving for it. And God commands us, slow down. But the church has taken on culture and we have become too busy for God. We are too busy serving God to slow down, to savor God. Slow down. We are too much like Mary, running around trying to serve the Savior And there is Martha sitting at Jesus' feet. The problem is we are too busy serving. And this is remarkable. When I finally grasped this, it leveled me. God doesn't need you to serve him. God delights in you serving him. God uses you, but God doesn't need you. I can guarantee you, each and every one of you, unless Christ comes, will die. And what will continue to happen? His kingdom will continue to go forth in glory and might and power. And Will Turner, in the grand scheme of things, is used by God, but God's kingdom marches on in spite of Will Turner. His kingdom marches on in spite of you. So that is encouraging to us because we can slow down. God doesn't need us, but he wants us to sit at his feet. He wants us to feast on him. The only way we're able to praise, to seek and fear the Lord is to slow down. And you know why that is why Sunday is so important? Because it's a built-in day for us to put the brakes on, to slow down and worship and seek and fear. Only when we slow down are we able to praise the Lord. Only when we slow down are we able to seek the Lord. Only when we slow down are we able to fear the Lord. Church, let's slow down together and come to the feast to taste and see that our God is great. Our God is glorious. Our God is a feast. The Father, the Son, the Spirit call you. They call me. Taste and see. Let us come together. Let us taste and we will see that the Lord is good. Oh Lord, you are good. You are so very good. Father, we confess that we have not praised you as we ought. Father, we confess our sin that we have not sought you as we must. And Father, we have not feared you as you deserve. Help us, we pray, to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. Help us to continually seek you and your kingdom. Help us to fear you, to tremble with reverence and awe before the splendor of your holiness. Help us to slow down. 
And as we serve you, help us to slow down to savor you. Help us to taste and see that you are good. May we glorify you as we feast upon you and your good word. In the name of our beloved Christ, we pray. Amen.